0: Our last speaker today, our keynote, is Judge Douglas Ginsburg, uh, Judge Williams' colleague on the D.C. Circuit. Judge Ginsburg was appointed to the D.C. Circuit in 1986, and he served as its chief judge from 2001 to 2008. Before that, he served in the Reagan administration, first as administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and then in the Justice Department in the Antitrust Division. Uh, before that, he taught at Harvard, and since then, he's taught at NYU, Chicago, the University of London, and elsewhere, uh, including most recently, uh, the Antonin Scalia Law School. And as I mentioned at the beginning of today's event, the event itself really was the idea of Judge Ginsburg. So I'm so glad that he could be with us today, and I've been looking forward to his remarks. So please join me in welcoming Doug Ginsburg. Thank,
1: Thank you, Adam. Well, when, um, when Adam First, raised this with me. He suggested that I might uh, <clears throat> first talk about the things that we've heard this afternoon, um, and then uh, some remarks beyond that. And so, I want to just pick up a couple of points that that uh, that came up earlier. Um, I think it was um, it had to have been brilliance. So it couldn't have been good fortune to have started the day with Tom Merrill's uh, paper because he. So um, accurately captured um, some of steve's um, great virtues as a judge, which were to say fidelity to the law coupled with uh, creativity uh, in the uh, with the respect particularly to administrative law problems, and third um, a, a, a hearty sense of Comparative institutional advantages, particularly, of course, as between courts and agencies. And I think that theme was um, very influ- well—not so much influential—as reflected throughout the entire uh, first first panels. Um, Tom recalled Steve's having given a uh, written a paper in the seventies for ACUS um, that. Um, Uh, he suggested, might have uh, struck the Reagan administration as just the right tone for somebody on the D.C. Circuit. Um, Actually, Steve was recruited for the Tenth Circuit when he was teaching at Colorado. And um, his progress towards the Tenth Circuit was blocked by one of the Colorado senators who took strong issue with Steve's view that energy ought not to be price regulated. And the uh, the administration's response, fortunately, uh, was not simply to drop the matter and Steve along with it, but rather simply to say, okay, Mr. Senator, we have something else for Steve. <laughs> you can chew on this. Um somewhat the same way we got uh, Jim Buckley uh, in, here in, rather than in the Second Circuit. <coughs> Pardon me um boyden spoke about um the ata case and um i hadn't before i read his paper i hadn't thought of it so much as a as a victory in any sense um but i understand his point and i i take it uh, readily I, I gobble it up <laughs> the idea that we, the, that it was a victory and that in that the Supreme Court was in the took the occasion to say the court the uh, the agency can't cure the deficiency uh, we'll have to do it uh, if there's if there's a not would otherwise be a non-delegation problem um, so here's the background on that um, Steve and I spent a lot of time on that opinion talking about this aspect of it about Remanding to the agency to see whether it could pro- provide a narrowing principle that would enable us to avoid saying that the um, that the relevant provision of the Clean Air Act was a, uh, a an unconstitutional delegation, and um, I was familiar with a case that the court had decided, D.C. Circuit had decided in um, 1970. I think late 72, maybe early 73, I'm sure it has to be in 72, um, written by Judge Leventhal with respect to a challenge to the, um, the uh, wage and price controls imposed by President Nixon and delegated to, uh, under his emergency, statutory emergency authority, uh, to delegate it to, the, uh, to a new wage and price board. And um, I was familiar with it because um, Dick Posner t- was teaching a course on regulated industries at Chicago uh, in seven, the uh, academic year 72 when this UCAS came down from, from uh, Nixon, and he basically prorogued the, uh, the, the course and said, let's do, instead of the ordinary way of doing this, let's do it as follows. Um, will have a, pri- a wage proceeding for the shoe industry. They want to increase their prices. And you few students here, you be the industry representatives and you all be the uh, agency decision makers and the others will be the agency staff who are institutionally supposed to oppose any application. Um, and it turned out Dick was a consultant for the shoe industry. Um, so that... Um, got me involved in wage and price controls. And Leventhal's opinion was that the delegation of authority would have been unconstitutional, but for the background understanding that um, the board would issue regulations constraining itself and that those regulations would look, and everyone knew what those regulations would look like, because we had been through it during the Korean War and during the Second World War. And this was a three-judge district uh, court, I believe. Yes, it was constitutional check. Um, so we thought about whether we could you know, salvage that idea, which we ended up doing. Now, in that respect, it was a total loss, nine zip in the Supreme Court. Okay, so um, I was really cheered by the idea that we you know, made some progress on non-delegation. As for whether there's some vitality to the non-delegation doctrine, the last thing I did at about 12.30 today before coming over was send off my chapter um, in a book on the non-delegation doctrine that's being published by AEI and edited by Peter Wallison and John Yu. Ten chapters, we've had the conference. um, And it's my view that Um, that the clock is ticking uh, rather rapidly here. In the um, Gundy case, uh, we have um, uh, Judge Gorsuch's, Justice Gorsuch's opinion, joined by the Chief Justice and Justice Thomas. And um, in in a separate, uh, Justice Alito concurring with the court, but saying that if there were a majority that wanted to revisit the Non delegation uh, issue, he would be, he was game. Uh, And Justice then, Judge Kavanaugh, having said essentially the same thing in a uh, footnote, I guess it was once he'd become a justice, in another case. That's five. That's five. And nobody knows, well, I don't know. You probably don't know what Justice Barrett thinks about this topic. There might be six votes, maybe five. To revisit the non-delegation doctrine. Now, if it's revisited, what will happen? I think, and the burden of the, my chapter in this book is that that the uh, that Justice Gorsuch's opinion in the Gundy case is the um, the likely, the most promising, and an excellent template for um, for going forward on the non-delegation doctrine. It depends very heavily on a distinction between. The delegation of policy and the delegation of implementation. Um, In other words, for the Congress to be making the policy decisions rather than delegating them. Uh, I know that's a difficult task. I think it's one that courts are up to. And um, I think that's where we will end up within the next few terms uh, of the Supreme Court. Uh, Mention was made by Jim Huffman of the. Sweet Home is a Sweet Home Charity, Jim. Sweet Home something. Sweet Home chapter um, case in which the um, the question was uh, under the Endangered Species Act whether the uh, the litany of things that one could not do to an endangered species, bat it, hack it, whip it, beat it, also included in, by implication destroy its habitat. Now uh, to say that was a leap from the from the uh, generous to the uh, to the ridiculous is an understatement. I think it was John Paul Stevens' worst opinion and that's you know a good you know a lot of opinions so that's saying something. Um, Justice Scalia dissented joined by Justice Rehnquist, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist and, and Justice Thomas. It's a it's a a horrible opinion. Now It was reversing an opinion that Steve wrote for the the circuit. Now, think about institutional advantage. What would happen if the circuit's opinion had survived? That statute would have been amended. It would have to have been amended to deal with habitat destruction. And it would not have been just a thoughtless thing added to a list. It would have had to be addressed with the real issues and difficulties involved. In, in encompassing habitat destruction into uh, so a congressional decision, and here, it, but when the court makes a decision like that, no, like the Supreme Court did, it essentially—you could tell—it would never come up again on the Congress. That would be the end of it. It's like the case it reminds me of a case that was in the um, '70s, I guess. It involved. It was Dis- Disney, was a party, and it involved um, the copyright uh, position. Uh, uh, right, the right, the copyright to copies made on videotape and what were then new video recorders, VCRs. And it was perfectly clear, to anyone who was turned to the issues at the time, that if the copyright decision went against uh, the homeowners, a tax would be placed on blank tape to compensate the, rather than than allowing the, the copyright to be exerted, it would have been handled like it is with the Copyright Royalty Tribunal for cable TV. That solution was precluded by the Supreme Court's decision. So sometimes having a good sense of institutional comparative advantage um, may d- really drive in a way that's not on the page what an appropriate decision from a court may be. A word that never showed up today, and it only came to mind as as Mike was being cross-examined about Steve's jurisprudence, um, and maybe 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 he'll reject it. Um, when, but I, I, it came to mind when Mike was saying that Steve had no interest whatsoever in the theory wars going on in academia, uh, and that word is pragmatism. Uh, you know uh, that encompasses a lot of what we're talking about: getting it straight, making the statutes work well, letting the agencies do well, do what they do well, and keeping the court limited to what it does well. Those are pragmatic uh, considerations, I think. And um, I think finally, uh, Nathan, uh, Nathan Zelensky referred to Steve's way of picking his clerks, in particular, picking them without regard to um, their political views or ideology. And I've, I've done the same thing uh, from, the, from the get-go. And um, there is one downside. You know, you do that in order not to have a monologue. And sometimes you end up with a monologue. If, if you don't pay attention to to what the views of three or four people are, there are years when you end up with three people who are of the same view. And that's there's no solution to that unless you want to start looking at ideology after all. So I don't know whether that happened to Steve or whether he maybe peaked a little bit in order to make sure he had some diversity in his views. All right, I'm turning now, and and I'll be a little more brief than I, because I was longer on the first part of this to um, my paper, which is not yet up on the web, and it's entitled My Colleague Steve Williams, and subtitled Gladly Would He Learn and Gladly Teach, which many of you will recognize from uh, Canterbury Tales. Steve uh, joined the circuit in June of 1986. I joined five months later. Now, I knew that Steve had been appointed by President Reagan, but I had no idea when. And he seemed such a natural as a judge that I thought he had been there for several years. It could have been five years. There was just no uh, no evident learning curve that he, you know, he wasn't awkward and or, or uh, mishandling anything. It was just remarkable. Uh, that impression was dispelled about his having been there for so long when I got there. When I was writing this and looked up, when was he confirmed? It was June of 1986. But Steve was a natural academic, and this, too, came up in the earlier conversation, I think, with Mike, Um, because that was his vocation. That's what he dedicated himself to. Then he became a judge. It's not a distraction. It's just a sort of add-on. You don't stop being an academic because you become a judge. You just have to be disciplined in your judicial role but that doesn't mean you're not still an academic if you want to be. But he was a natural academic, and that was one of the reasons he was so well-suited to the bench. He had been a professor for 17 years at uh, Colorado. And his unbridled curiosity uh, and his intellectual rigor, I must say qualities no longer so closely associated with the legal academy, uh, made him both a a delight uh, and a challenge as a colleague. Our colleague Dave Tatel uh, aptly said at that ceremony to which Nathan referred, I think, but uh, many years before Steve's passing, Dave said, there is no one with whom I would rather disagree. It's a, it's a great compliment because to disagree with Steve is to invite a, a conversation invariably honest and respectful and no, uh, that was sure to sharpen one's own ideas and perhaps change one's mind as well. In keeping with good academic and judicial practice, Steve seems to have read all of the opinions circulated by the other judges, which we do a week before they're published. They lie on the table, as it were, for a week. Um, Does every judge do that? Well, I know that I read selectively the probability that a case arising under, say, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is going to of recurring significance in our case law seems just too remote for me to, at least to this age, to be reading it. But So why do I think Steve read them all? Well, I don't know that, but he often referred to some then circulating opinion that I had to admit having passed over, or maybe I'd say I hadn't yet gotten to it, um, which gave Steve the opportunity to describe the case, and if he doubted its wisdom, to do so in a lighthearted and half-amused fashion. If you know Steve, you know that fashion. The benefit of having so astute and rigorous a colleague reading one's opinions should be obvious. On at least two occasions that I can recall, I got an email from Steve questioning some aspect of an opinion that I had sent to the full court for its week of what a, what is usually undisturbed repose. And in each of those instances, uh, Steve had spotted an oversight, a problem that neither I nor my two colleagues nor our three clerks had seen. Now, Steve Steve always saw the humor in what he regarded as human folly. And folly included most of what appeared in the news of the day and in some judicial decisions with which he disagreed. And including some that he felt constrained to make. I recall very clearly one conference. uh, We were sitting after oral argument in a regulatory case. It was actually the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And under the applicable standard of review, we were bound to uphold or bless any new regulation that was not arbitrary, capricious, an abuse of discretion, or otherwise not in accordance with law. Steve began and effectively ended the conference by saying, well, nothing here but the usual lunacy. Conference with Steve was always a pleasure, but to which I looked forward, and even if that meant first listening to some less than stellar oral arguments. After disposing of the cases, the three judges might linger for half an hour or more to discuss whatever came to mind. Uh, perhaps it's only because of my lack of interest but I don't recall Steve ever having talked about sports. Maybe I just can pass me by. But most anything else, foreign policy, a new play at the Shakespeare Theater, whatever, might come up. Now, all of our colleagues, I tell you, are, are polymaths to one degree or one, in one direction or another. And I think we all delighted in our post-argument conferences with Steve. As for the cases themselves, Steve and I sat together on about 450 cases over a period of 35 years. We disagreed 15 times, but otherwise we agreed 97% of of those cases. Of the 15, two were en banc decisions from which I filed partial dissents, whereas Steve had joined the decision of the court but did not write separately. Ten were cases where I joined the opinion of another judge, and Steve dissented. Three were cases in which I wrote for the court, and Steve dissented and Looking back, there's not a single case that Steve wrote from which I dissented. Steve may well have inherited uh, his libertarian bent from his father, C. Dickerson Williams, a distinguished member of the New York bar, and as I recalled. Um, Bill Buckley used to refer to him as the WGL, the world's greatest lawyer. Um, his father had clerked for Chief Justice Taft. He'd been a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and he'd served as Solicitor General in the Department of Commerce. But uh, according to his obituary in the New York Times in 1998, he was best known for his First Amendment cases, in which he had successfully defended writers and editors of the Communist Party newspaper who'd been charged with, publishing, quote, publishing an obscene and unpatriotic poem. That was in 1927. And for um, uh, defending William F. Buckley Jr. in the National Review, in what the Times called, quote, a libel suit brought by the Nobelist, Lin- Linus Pauling, who objected to being described in the publication's editorials as a fellow traveler. Now, in each of the three cases that I wrote from which Steve dissented, he was taking the more liberty-protective position. Nathan was onto to this, clearly, and as was uh, well, Nathan, I think, in particular. Um, first, in chronological order, a sealed case from 1987. It was Oliver North's case. North had appealed a district court order holding him in contempt for refusing to comply with a grand jury subpoena he argued the independent counsel convening the grand jury lacked the authority to do so, and the independent counsel um, had been appointed under the Ethics and Government Act. But adding, two, uh, adding a belt to the braces, uh, the attorney general had dele- also delegated his own authority. So both the court and Judge Williams, concurring in, port, in part, believed that the AG had lawfully delegated his authority to the independent counsel, and his co-panelist, um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I did not reach whether the parallel appointment under the, uh, of the, by the independent counsel under the Ethics and Government Act was a violation of the appointments clause because we didn't see how an otherwise lawful exercise of prosecutorial power would be tainted by a constitutionally suspect grant of the same authority. Hence, North's constitutional challenge to the statutory provision for the appointment of an independent counsel we held was unripe for review. The, the council had not then taken any action they couldn't have taken if appointed only by the Attorney General. Steve, and I'm going to quote him, dissented from the court's conclusion, he said dissents, from the court's conclusion, in that Council Walsh's regulatory authority, regulatory authority, yeah, Renders North's attack on the Ethics and Government Act unripe. he descended from that holding. He noted that North's challenge to the act is that it subjects him to coercive process by a man who is free to disregard constraints that would otherwise, that would operate on a member of the executive branch. Close quote. Although North did not in any way trace the challenged subpoena to his freedom from the executive from executive branch oversight. Steve thought the appointments clause teaching of Buckley against Vallejo and of Bauscher against Sinar required a strong presumption that the prosecutor's decisions would be different but for his unlawful appointment. Quoting Steve, in the context of a constitutional attack on tenure provisions, distorted conduct may be inferred automatically from faulty allegiances. Now, it's a very interesting proposition, really. I mean, a case, an issue which is arguably unripe would be ripe because of a presumption that this power would be abused at some point. Steve Zhu the Appointments Clause consists with the liberty-protective principle that those who exercise executive powers should be fully accountable to the public because under the Ethics and Government Act, the IC was removable only for cause Steve believed that that degree of insulation from executive influence was enough to taint the independent counsel's actions. Um, Ruth and I did not read the precedent that way. Quote In Bauscher, uh, for example, we wrote, The Constitution to claim was ripe because the removal provision by making the controller General the servant of the Congress and not of the President necessarily had an immediate and real impact on how he performed his duties. Clearly ripe in that. Circumstance. Steve's decision, by the way, not to go on and discuss the merits in any way of the appointments clause issue reflects the judicial modesty, his judicial modesty, that really speaks to the same libertarian principle, with which I agree. Now, another judge might have addressed the merits, but Steve didn't because they were beyond the scope of the court's opinion. And we both believe that a counter-majoritarian court should not express an opinion that is not necessary to the disposition of an issue before it. We just disagreed in that case about necessity. The second case, uh, Steve dissented, it was one where Steve dissented from my opinion for the en banc court in a case called United States against Bailey in 94. And it concerned the application of the statute uh, 924C1, that imposes a five-year term of imprisonment on anyone who, quote, during, the, during and in relation to any crime of violence or drug trafficking crime, uses or carries a firearm, a familiar provision. Now, the circuit previously had used uh, a, 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 quote, open-ended test, this is my right, that takes account of numerous factors arguably relevant to whether a gun was used in relation to the drug trafficking. Close quote. The Anbach court replaced that test with, quote, a test that looks to two factors only, the proximity of the guns of the drugs involved in the underlying offense and the accessibility of the guns of the defendant from the place where the drugs or drug paraphernalia or drug proceeds are located. Now, that was me. In his dissent, which was joined by Judges Silberman and Buckley, Steve viewed the court's new test as criminalizing mere possession of a weapon, quote, with a contingent intent to use it, or with a floating intent to use, close quote. Now, he may have been concerned that the court's rule would deter lawful possession of a firearm and chill exercise of a defendant's constitutional right to keep or carry a weapon. But in any event, he thought the the statutory term use or carry, use and carry, should be read to reach only situations in which a defendant, quote, actively exploits the existence of the gun that is immediately available to him. So the court's test, going from these innumerable factors to two, was more clear, and it might well have chilled the drug dealer's lawful possession of a weapon. Of course, even a drug dealer doesn't forfeit his Second Amendment right because he's committed an unrelated offense, if it's unrelated. Well, Steve's position is more consistent with an expansive view of the Second Amendment and an attendant desire to read statutes in a way that prevents chilling individual gun ownership. He also expressed the concern about a defendant not on notice that his conduct was criminal. And at one point he says, we are at least confronting a statutory ambiguity that under the rule of lenity should be resolved in favor of the narrow construction. In the end, Steve's view, to say the least, prevailed. I was writing for the en banc court. The Supreme Court reversed us unanimously. That's two times for Steve and me in the Supreme Court, going down unanimously. I did it once with Harry Edwards. But uh, it's not, you know, it's a a hat trick of sorts. So when I got there, Justice O'Connor wrote, rather than requiring actual use, the D.C. Circuit would criminalize, quote, Simple possession with a floating intent to use, close quote, citing Judge Williams. (laughs) And she went on, the shortcomings of this test are succinctly explained in Judge Williams' (laughs) dissent. I was particularly surprised about this. I thought, you know, we might get reversed by four, maybe even eight one. But Judge Kennedy, then Judge Kennedy on the Ninth Circuit, had joined. who joined the Supreme Court, of course, uh, in a circuit opinion, which I noted in my opinion. I said, Judge, Judge, Justice then Judge Kennedy wrote for the Ninth Circuit in the seminal opinion for that circuit, a test that aligned perfectly with the D.C. Circuit's interpretation. That was U.S. v. Stewart, where the defendant had sold drugs from the trunk of his car, where he had also placed his gun, presumably so it would be readily available if he needed it in the course of the transaction and to make that less likely. And according to then Judge Kennedy, quote, if the firearm is within the possession or control of a person who commits an underlying crime, as defined by the statute and the circumstances show that the firearm facilitated or had a role in the crime, such as emboldening an actor who had an opportunity or ability to display or discharge the weapon to protect himself or intimidate others, whether or not such display or in fact occurred or discharged. Then there's a violation of the statute, so a complete flip flop. Hence, nine zip instead of eight one. (laughs) The last one was Friedman against Sibelius in 2012, which deals with the responsible corporate officer uh, doctrine. The three officers of the Purdue Frederick Company, a massive producer of opioids, fentanyl, not uh, opioids, uh, they were suspended from participation in federal health care programs for 12 years. Uh, following their misdemeanor conviction for misbranding a drug, namely OxyContin. And the court held that the secretary's interpretation of the statutory phrase, a criminal, uh, a criminal offense consisting of a misdemeanor relating to fraud, close quote, was unambiguously correct. The court held the key phrase relating to fraud created a distinction between categorical or generic fraud and a context-specific finding of fraud. Because the secretary could point to case-specific factors that suggested the officers actually committed a fraud, the court, that is to say, uh, myself and someone else, uh, held that their convictions did not require proving the elements of generic fraud. And Steve dissented, in relevant part, arguing that, quote, relating to should not be given such a broad sweep. He believed that the context in which that phrase was deployed required a narrower construction of the statute. Um, I won't go on with the details, but he says very troublingly, without such an effort at seeking the legal meaning of the disputed clause, we have a reading by the secretary that offers none of the precision and guidance that are necessary so that those enforcing the law do not act in an arbitrary or discriminatory way. Now, the difference in our views turned in part on, again, on Judge Williams's greater concern about government reach and uh, uh, depriving individuals, uh, in this case, of their their hard-earned human capital. In each of these three cases, Steve's dissent reflected a more liberal position than I thought was warranted by the law. In addition, I should say that there—so Nathan was, I think, right on point there. In addition, um, I should say there is not, in any of Steve's dissents, a single rancorous word— A debate with Steve raises his opponent's level of discourse, as was once the norm in faculty lounges and workshops. Perhaps because we were both refugees from law faculties, Steve and I enjoyed, nay, reveled in the give and take of legal debate. The exchange of ideas, at first in conversation, then in writing, was, and for me still is, the reason neither of us would ever retire while still able to engage.
0: Well, thank you so much for that, Judge, and what a beautiful note to end on. Thanks again to everybody for joining us today. Thanks to all of our authors and and all of us uh, who are here today. Now, if you'll please join me outside for a reception. We'll call this event to a close. Thanks again, everybody.